0: Hey, everyone. As we head into another weekend of potential protest, I want to hear how you're doing. If you're going out to make yourself heard, how are you preparing to demonstrate in the middle of a pandemic? If you've already been out there, what's the moment that stuck with you when you got back? Give us a call. Let us know. We're at 202-888-2588. Thanks. Now on to the show. When I think about Larry Kramer, the AIDS activist who died last week at the age of 84, I can hear his voice, loud, urgent, filled with this righteous anger. Plague!
1: 40 million infected people is a fucking plague! And nobody acts as it is! As
0: this is, it is, it is a clip that started making the rounds last week. It was recorded 30 years ago. Larry is expressing this frustration with the pace of HIV research and drug development.
1: We are in the worst shape we have ever, ever, ever been in. Nothing is working. None of that shit you saw on that screen is working.
0: One of the funny things about Larry Kramer, though, is that until he opened his mouth, he didn't read as particularly angry.
1: Visually, what you can picture is a very unprepossessing-looking white Jewish man with a thick set of glasses and a fringe of white hair.
0: Mark Harris is a journalist and a cultural critic. I heard he wore overalls a lot.
1: He wore overalls a lot. He he wore a lot of big um, turquoise jewelry. So the visual does not quite match the firebrand that you might imagine.
0: The last time Mark saw Larry, it was at a benefit for the gay men's health crisis an organization Larry founded to fight AIDS.
1: Larry was winning some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award, um, and the evening went on for a very, very long time. It was one of those, you know, everybody gets a turn to talk benefits, and Larry was the grand finale, of course. Um <laughs> Everyone spoke and he got up and it was this very warm, touching moment. And then he made this long speech during which he essentially like ripped into half the audience for complacency or their failures or laziness or or ineffectuality or short-sightedness. That was a very Larry Kramer moment. He was not going to be sentimentalized by this huge crowd into this old deer who fought in another era.
0: Larry Kramer's life was shaped by pandemic and protest. Listening to old clips of him talking about HIV, it feels like he could be talking about the coronavirus. Listening to Larry talk about his commitment to LGBT rights, his words echo the chants that are filling American streets today. And yeah, Larry was tough uncompromising. But Mark says there's something else.
1: You can't make progress without people like Larry Kramer.
0: Today on the show, remembering Larry Kramer, because his life is full of lessons for today. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Larry Kramer burned through his life as if he didn't expect to make it to 84. He was a relentlessly hard worker. As a writer and a satirist, he was nominated for both an Academy Award and a Pulitzer Prize. But AIDS activism was his calling.
1: Larry Kramer was an artist and he was an activist. Most times when you say that about someone, one of those things takes a backseat to the other. We have great artists who also contribute some activism to the world, and we have great activists who were also okay artists. But with Larry, you're talking about someone who was really important in both categories. As a novelist, he wrote Faggots, which was a really important step in gay novels in the 1970s, and of course, The Normal Heart, which is a genuinely activist play and a genuine work of art, which is an unbelievably tough combination to pull off.
0: And his art, like like faggots pissed a lot of people off, right?
1: Absolutely. Larry didn't write or do anything in the 70s or 80s without some gay people saying, You're not helping the cause, you're hurting the cause. I mean, the most the most famous essay he wrote, a piece called 1112 uh, and counting in the New York Native, which was the first really major piece to sort of sound a very, very loud alarm from a gay man to the gay community about the AIDS epidemic, infuriated a lot of gay people uh, when it was published. Um,
0: What was it that made people angry about it?
1: Everyone was okay with shaking a fist at the Republican government, the Reagan administration, the scientific community, the medical community that was either ignoring this or demonizing people. 1,112 and counting was that, but it was also a piece that said, we have to wake up. Our community is sleepwalking through this and we're we're walking into our own graves. Larry really, really took to task people in the gay community who he did not feel were taking the AIDS crisis sufficiently seriously. And Larry said, we have to change our behavior because it's killing us. So he got accused of being a prude, of being sex negative, of being someone who hates gay people, of being someone who hates gay sex, of being someone who was mad to be left out of the party and all the fun and wanted everybody else's fun destroyed. I mean, I think it's, when you talk about his bravery as an activist, you have to talk about the bravery of being willing to take a stand that will alienate some of the people you know, who should be on your side
0: part of part of Larry Kramer's outrage, to me, it, it seemed to come from the fact that he he had this privilege. he was he was white. He went to Yale. He had class status. But the AIDS crisis revealed that that status could be ripped away. is that Is that the right way to understand him?
1: I think it's a right way to understand him. Yes. I mean, Larry, as you said, he was white. He was male. He was Jewish, which was not in the 1950s necessarily a category of privilege, but nor was it in the 1950s something that would exclude him from Yale and exclude him from the halls of power. So, like, in some ways, I think it is useful to think of Larry Kramer as a white man of a certain generation who was Comfortable with the idea of power, with the institutions of power, and who expected to to have it. Not only is that okay in my book for an activist; it's it's necessary. I mean, you know, I'm married to Tony Kushner, and he wrote a piece about Larry this uh, last week in the New York Times, where he said that Larry was not he was not a burn it all down activist. You know, he was prepared to raise institutions of power, R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E, if he didn't have access to them. But what Tony wrote was, the point was the access, not the raising. He wanted in to the government. He wanted into the New York Times. He wanted people in powerful positions to hear him and open those doors. And he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. And
0: well, and I deserve to be here.
1: Right, this is right.
0: my place.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that, the, the word entitlement is so loaded to use right now. But Larry, maybe because of his race, his gender, the time he lived in, and maybe because of his circumstances, and maybe because of his personality, who he was, felt entitled to that kind of access to power. That kind of entitlement, I think, is really valuable. You belong there. You you have you have as much right to power as anyone who has power.
0: For thirty five years, fighting for access to power is exactly what Larry Kramer did.
1: So, two years after eleven hundred and twelve Counting was published in the New York Native, uh, Larry did the first of the two things that were sort of perhaps his most lasting legacy as an activist, which is that he founded co-founded GMHC, uh, the Gay Men's Health Crisis. And I believe a couple of years after that, uh, he founded um, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which we now know as um, ACT UP, and which is still around, as is GMHC. You know, ACT UP became an incredibly important protest group, and GMHC, over the years and decades, um, moved from being a small, local, grassroots organization to, you know, a major national fundraiser and sort of center point for uh, gay activism.
0: I think it's important to remember the anger (laughs) that ACT UP channeled. I wonder if there's one scene, one protest that would do that for our listeners
1: Well, um, the one I'm thinking of is St. Patrick's Cathedral. A very famous protest where uh, in 1989, then Cardinal John O'Connor was giving a mass uh, at St. Patrick's in New York City and ACT UP um, disrupted it. What they were specifically protesting was um, that O'Connor was fighting against teaching safe sex in public schools and fighting against the distribution of condoms. And they they lay down in in the church. Um, I mean, and and St. Patrick's is big. That was an incredibly important protest because. The sort of mainstream reaction to it was, This goes too far. I, you know, I'm sorry for gay people, but how dare they disrupt a Catholic mass? And there was a portion of the gay community that was like, This hurts our cause. We look like extremists. We don't have anything to gain by um, alienating Catholics this way. And I think that one thing Larry Kramer really understood was that not only would uh, an activist movement survive mainstream accusations of bad taste, you know, or inappropriateness, but that sometimes you had to do that. You literally had to like lay down your body in an aisle of St. Patrick's cathedral. You had to yell at the um, top Catholic church official in New York City, you're killing us to get people to pay attention.
0: I want to talk a little bit about Larry Kramer's relationship with Tony Fauci. Because Fauci's, of course, he's helping to lead the response to the coronavirus right now. And he also worked in AIDS at the NIH for years and years. And I feel like their relationship is instructive because it shows how two people can respect each other even if they don't necessarily agree and they don't have to be nice to each other. They can push each other. Like I found this C-SPAN clip from 1993. Larry and Tony Fauci are there together and they're talking about a new presidential AIDS task force. And Larry Kramer is just so frustrated.
1: Every time Tony wants to go to the toilet, 10 committees have to vote about giving him permission. That's, what the, that's why there's not a cure for anything.
0: And he literally says to Tony Fauci, he says the president is taking Tony's balls away.
1: I don't want another dime. If somebody with a brain was there right now to, to, to supervise how it was spent, you'd get a lot more bang for the buck.
0: I wonder if you can talk about their relationship and describe it, because it seems so unique, but also very powerful.
1: You know, I think as we've watched Anthony Fauci over the last three months, we've seen that he is an incredibly patient person who, you know, we have decades of evidence to point to the fact that Anthony Fauci can withstand a lot if he thinks... um, the public health goal is um, worth it, worth withstanding that stuff. And I think when you talk about the relationship between Larry Kramer and, and Fauci, you, you have to give um, Fauci credit for never walking away from that relationship. He is someone who is willing to be excoriated, willing to be yelled at, and doesn't stop listening the the lesson of his career is is really different than the lesson of of Larry Kramer's and it's not a lesson for activists it's a lesson for the people who activists are yelling at and angry at which is don't prioritize your sense of personal injury or your hurt feelings you know if someone is yelling at you angrily don't make the most important part of your Feelings, the fact that they're angry and you don't like being yelled at, listen to what they're angry about and see if they have a point and be honest with yourself about whether they're right. And if they are right, figure out how to work with them.
0: Hmm.
1: Fauci kept coming back and Larry Kramer did not give up on having that fight. You know, he kept that relationship going privately because he knew it was important. He knew it was important to. to the cause, and maybe he also liked him, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's no question that Larry Kramer had respect for him.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that, that Fauci memorialized Larry Kramer in this past week. He
1: attacked me, he called me a murderer, he called me an incompetent idiot, I mean, publicly. But then as I got to listen to what he had to say and realized that he was making some very important points that we in the establishment needed to listen
0: to, Uh, Were you surprised by anything he said?
1: I what surprised me about what Fauci said was how warm it was about about Larry Kramer. It wasn't the 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 way he memorialized Larry Kramer was not in a tone of sort of the grudging respect of an adversary. He clearly really liked him and respected him.
0: I found this other moment of Larry Kramer talking. And he's talking about what change looks like. It's from back in 1993. He's telling the audience, you have power. Your power is your voice. But just before that, he says something else, which he talks about red ribbons. And he says, I'm sick of them. And I don't wear them anymore. Because instead of wearing a ribbon, he wants people to do something. And it stood out to me because... This moment we're in now, I think a lot of people are struggling with what they can do. How can they, how can they be allies to the people around them? Like just this week, we had this Instagram blackout. People just posting right. black squares. And I was like, I wonder what Larry Kramer would have thought of that.
1: I would never want to speak for Larry because I still believe that he has the power to <laughs> yell at someone for getting it wrong. But I don't think that Larry Kramer would, A, have been a big fan of the empty gesture or a visual gesture, whether it was a red ribbon or a a black Instagram square, that stands in place of actually doing something. I especially don't think he would have been a fan of the point of that particular protest this week, which is everyone should stop talking.
0: Yeah, I mean, act up. Theme was silence equals death.
1: Right, right. Um, like gestural activism, and I'm not disparaging this for for people who want to do it. Like in some ways. I think on a personal level, it is better than nothing. I think there are probably some people who freaked out members of their own family by doing that. You know, like a, 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 a meaningless gesture for a corporation can be a meaningful gesture for one particular person. So we shouldn't we shouldn't imagine that you know, you know, the impact of someone in a small uh, red state town in 1993 wearing a red ribbon and being the only person in his community to do it that would have been real, much more real than, you know, every single celebrity on the Golden Globes doing it. It's not a one-size... Activism and forms of activism are not a one-size-fits-all thing, but he was certainly not a big fan of empty gestures.
0: You know, Kramer... Larry Kramer had this singular devotion to LGBT liberation, but the moment we're in now is about so... Much at once, like there's a health crisis, and protests against police violence, and this economic devastation. I, I wonder if that complexity makes replicating what Kramer did, which was so focused, harder.
1: Um. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really hard, but I also think it's it's important to remember that what. Larry Kramer did was not a completely worked out, pre-planned strategy that started in 1983 with 1112 and counting and anticipated every single thing that would unfold. It was it was full of fits and starts. It was full of organizations that he started and then had a bitter rift with. You know, it was it changed along the way as the world changed, as the plague changed, and so you know if there's a lesson for today for activists it's it's probably that you have to wake up, like you have to keep your eye on the long-term goal, but you also have to wake up every day and think, okay, where are we right now? What circumstances have changed since yesterday? How do I need to respond to this moment? And I think that is the great challenge, in my opinion, for 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 activists right now, to be both far sighted and extremely short term to be both uh idealistic and pragmatic to think about you know today and to think about the horizon I, those are
0: and not to get discouraged by mess along the way because the work is messy
1: yes i think that's a great point don't get discouraged by mess because it's been like to put it very 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 mildly a messy week you know And a messy year. And when there is mess, there will always be people who are ready to say, well, it's it's just a shame that the whole point of the protest was ruined by blah, blah, blah. It wasn't. It isn't.
0: Mark Harris, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You can find Mark Harris's cultural criticism in New York magazine. And that's the show. What next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Daniel Hewitt. As always, we have help from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Lizzie O'Leary is going to be back in your feed tomorrow with What Next TBD. And I will catch you right back here on Monday. Have a safe weekend. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
1: Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather,
0: emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.